Welcome to Lead Difference Experiment with Friends. Uh, this is Kylan Johnson. I'm taking over the reins today because we chat with people who are our friends and we have some pretty amazing friends here at Lead Difference. And uh, the friend that I'm talking to today, you will know as James Bryant because that is his name. James, welcome to your own podcast. Thank you for the welcome, Kyron. Hello, friends. <laughs> Hello, it's, friends out there listening. <laughs> it's very important for us, and we've been planning this for a while, to actually spend time chatting to you and kind of finding a bit about you and your journey uh, because there is a lot to that. And so I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today. And um, mm-hmm. I'm just going to jump straight into it, really, because you you founded Lead Difference. You're the, you're the guy. Like, do you have a title? No, no one at Lead Different has a title. Mm. No one ever has. Uh, you just don't want, because I, I, in my mind, you're, you're the CEO, but like I just, if you're not comfortable with that, then we won't go there. I mean, maybe I am, but it's <laughs> it's one of those things where, uh, so, t- so titles are, are a double-edged sword, right? They, they let people know the boundaries, mm. but then they create boundaries. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's a, Good and bad thing, and so we're experimenting to see what it's like with uh, where the boundaries are. Hey, we just need to get this stuff done. How do we work together to get this done? Yeah, does it make sense? So that gives an insight into a little bit of lead different in the culture. Can you explain what does lead different do? Yes, I can. Great. This is what we so, and that's a good question. I want to rewind for. All of Lead Difference existence, people have been saying, yeah, so what do you guys do? And I've fumbled around and made stuff up. And some of it might have worked, but I, um, I've i actually nailed it down now. I've actually got an answer for you. Well, I'm glad. So here's my answer. Go for it. We build people worth following. Yeah, right. Right? And, and so and we arrived on that, and there's a little explanation around it, is that most leadership... Uh, happens via way of manipulation, right? So I'm your boss, you do what I say, or I don't pay you, or you get in trouble, or whatever. Yeah. And, it's, and it's highly uh, carrot and stick um, mm. related, which is a leadership principle, which is something that is taught in MBAs, the carrot and the stick leadership principle, which is <laughs> hilarious because it was almost a satirical um, example from, I want to say the late 1800s, when it comes to how to get a donkey to do what you want. Yeah. Which is okay, but most of the organizations that I work with have very few donkeys involved mm. in their leadership structure. Well, no, actually, I take that back. There's a lot of donkeys. No, just kidding. <laughs> but if you treat people like a donkey, then they will become a donkey, right? Like if that's the, the framework yeah. that they're in. Yeah. 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 And so, so what we say is how about instead of moving from like high-level manipulation, which is what most – uh, leadership is how do we move beyond that to being a person worth following mm. and when you're a person worth following most issues uh begin to take care of themselves culturally um uh, and so we we dive into that and, and that's kind of our approach is become a leader worth following instead of trying to worry about why won't this person do what they're told why are they mm. so let's move on from that and explore what am i doing what am i how am i feeding into this situation and why is that important? Uh, because we can't control anyone else. No matter how much we think the carrot and stick works. <laughs> uh, like you've got a little little people who live in your house. Yes. I've got slightly bigger people who live in my house. Seven to five-year-old. And you've you got a, a five and four, a one. 
five and one. Okay. Uh, and like, as adults, we can't control little people. Like, why do we think we can control older people? Yeah. Um, controlling people is leads to incredibly toxic situations usually. Um, so, so the way we look at it is most organizations are defined by a mixture of chaos and, and inertia. Uh, I was talking to a, a really big organization this week with um, their, one of the heads of HR. There's 90,000 employees here around the world. And I was like, I'm going to throw this out there and see what she says. I said, yeah, I, I would argue that most organizations are defined by chaos and inertia. And there was a second pause. I was like, oh, I might have lost this contract. Yeah. She goes, yeah. Yep, I think you've nailed it. Uh, and then the reason is, and I, and I say, well, if our organizations are defined by that, it's because we are as human beings, right? So me, as I, if I'm drifting along, if I'm not focused, I'm not paying attention, chaos and inertia begin to define uh, my relationships, how I'm going at work, my finances, uh, my, rela- my relationship with kids, my relationship with my wife. And it, and it becomes kind of a mix of chaos in, in moments and then inertia in other moments. Uh, and, and that's why our organizations are, are defined by that. Yeah. And so part of like the theme that we've been talking about the last few uh, episodes in the podcast is around about um, creating a deliberate future from shifting from default to deliberate future. And we're going to look at that in a moment for you, but I want to take you back to kind of 12-year-old James. Yeah. What was his aim? Um, but what, what's 12-year-old me? 12-year-old me is obsessed with basketball. Mm. Um, uh, I trying to fit in and figure out where I fit. Um, uh, like just like people, so people have always been a curiosity to me. Hmm. So even as a 12-year-old, I, I, and even, even younger than that, I remember thinking, and this is, <laughs> yeah, I'll say this, <laughs> but I remember thinking I can get whatever I want from my teachers. Right. That is an interesting insight into your psyche. Yeah. Yeah. In that I could high-level manipulate teachers to whatever I want. So, so I had classmates come in and say, hey, can you get that test delayed? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, I'm on it. Yeah, and right. I'd get a test or an assignment extension for everyone in the class. I could talk my way into anything. Um, and that, that, that was me as a 12-year-old. I used to... Uh, my parents said I used to, uh, teachers would say it all the time that I would annoy them and drive, drive them crazy. And then just as they were about to explode, I could feel that they were about to lose it at me. And I would charm the socks off them and they would think that I was the greatest kid in class. And it would, in an instant, I could turn them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's an incredible gift, but also there's, there's a danger in that, right? Like there's some, some serious damage that you can do. Correct. Can. Yeah. And did. Okay. Right? And, the, and the biggest person that did damage to was me. Explain that. Uh, well, there's a lack of authenticity in there. Um, there's a lack of real um, quality and closeness of relationship when you're constantly going, how can I turn this to my advantage? What can I do with this, if that, if that makes sense? Yeah. Uh, and that was, I feel, I feel like that was me for... Uh, a large portion uh, of my life, like my wife, my wife has said to me a couple of times. Uh, so there's a there's a quote from from the Office, the TV show The Office, um, and there's a guy in there, Creed, who's this old weird dude, <laughs> yeah. and he says, uh, uh, "Being in a cult is more fun 
but there's more money in leading a cult. <laughs> so my wife is always saying to me, I think you could start a cult one yeah. day. Yeah, that's a profitable opportunity for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but it's interesting holding that space and, and knowing when I'm interacting with people uh, that it, in what I do, in the, in the training that I run, in knowing that I, I can manipulate, but that'll be the destruction of me and this environment. Um, and, and knowing that is, uh, it's a, it took me close to six or seven years to become comfortable with being an influence, being able to influence people without manipulating them. Yeah. Um, so, like, because I'm curious, how did you first realize, hey, this is manipulation and I'm not comfortable with that? And then how did you realize, okay, now I've reached a point where I'm comfortable influencing people without manipulating them? Yeah, so so I would have been about 17 when I realized it was manipulation hmm. and I wasn't comfortable with that. It wasn't until I was about 35 that I figured out how to do it. Yeah, which I feel like coincides with the start of Lead Different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, a, and a lot of that coincides with, you know, a whole bunch of stuff going wrong in my life hmm. and me beginning to um, rebuild. And, and that's one of the beautiful things about when you have everything stripped away um, is you can decide what you take with you. So I think everyone's life should be like demolished and hit rock bottom at least once or twice a decade. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, and so well, let, let's talk about that for a second, that the, those things that have shaped your life and have kind of stripped you back between sort of 12-year-old James and, and now, like what are those key moments that have actually had that influence on you? Yeah, so, so I moved to America when I was 18. Yeah, um, uh, pretty much straight up to high school. Uh, I, I for a year between I went for a year between high school and America. I, I went and lived on Rottnest Island, <laughs> and worked in um, uh, the the um, Kingston Barracks kitchen. So I'm not sure I knew that. This is news to me. So in 1997, if you went to Kingston Barracks for any kind of school camp, yeah, here in Perth, I would have prepared your food in some way. Wow. Yeah, and it probably didn't taste great either. <laughs> <laughs> I was in no way qualified. Mm. I had a friend. Yeah, I had a friend. He, um, my, my dad had a friend who who uh, ran a, a big catering company, their their Perth office, mm. and they used to cater for mine sites. And I was like, oh, I need to make some money before I go to America. So uh, I got a job with them. And the day before I was supposed to fly out to some like remote red dirt mine site in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I get this call, hey, would you prefer to go to Rotnest? <laughs> That's great. And, and it was a pretty easy decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got paid less, but I didn't hate my life. <laughs> as much. Yeah, that's that's fair. And so what, what did you learn during that time? So so over on Kingston Barracks, I learned uh, I was I spent most of the time in fear. Uh, I was working in a kitchen with people who were drunk and stoned most of the time. Wow. I drunk more than stoned. Yeah. And the, the, the two head chefs hated each other and would <laughs> constantly get in, like, fights. And when I say fights, they made Gordon Ramsay look like, you know, <laughs> a, a little lamb. Yeah. Like they were throwing, like, saucepans across the kitchen, knives across the kitchen at each other. And if you're working in the middle, like, I remember numerous times a week, you just have to hit the deck. And like hide underneath the thing, uh, 
Yeah, wow. So, like, so, as, a, as an 18-year-old trying to figure that out, like, to be exposed yeah. to that, I'm, assume, I'm assuming you'd never been exposed to something quite like that before. That's, uh, that's no. an eye-opener. No, that was a real-life eye-opener. It's like, man, there's some crazy people in this world. Um, but then I moved to America. And when I moved to America, I moved in with um, a, a, a family over there um, with a guy who Time Magazine called uh, in 2006 uh, one of the top the top ten leaders who matter most in this world, uh, and he was writing his like definitive life work book at that time, uh, and, and possibly one of the most uh, incredible things was watching this guy lead himself really well and just catch things from him. I remember watching um, the Monica Lewinsky. Um, oh, not Mark Lewinsky, uh, Bill Clinton, when, you know, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Uh, but I remember watching uh, his trial in the, uh, was it in the Senate? Yeah, they did the Senate um, and for impeachment, for lying to Congress. Uh, and just different things where he, he would say stuff like, hey, people will forgive us stuff up, but they're not going to forgive a cover up. Yeah, and that was what he was getting in trouble for. Like, if he had just come out and said, "Yeah, I had an affair with that intern. It was wrong. It was an abuse of power. There's all kinds of stuff." Mm. If he had just owned that. His whole legacy would be vastly different. Um, as it is, he's kind of dodged it and jumped around, and you know, done a duck and weave. There's a cloud uh, that hangs over that. Yeah, and there's a cloud yeah. that hangs over him because of that. Where it's on, oh, no, he tried to cover that how, cover that up. Uh, and he hasn't, still hasn't owned the fact of how toxic it was with the lack of, with the with the power dynamics. Right? Yeah. She's a twenty-two yeah. year old intern, I think she was something, super young. Yeah. Um, he was an old man of, I don't know, probably about my age. <laughs> so you're living with this high-profile family, this high-profile guy, uh, during the Clinton trial, getting some leadership tips. What what else did you learn during that time? Living with someone like that and just watching them, despite the fact there's this super high-profile guy, he can't go shopping without being mobbed, yeah. right? He, you know, people, he can't do anything without people, a crowd gathering around him. Uh, so what he would do to create fun mem- memories and moments with his kids is I remember one night he, would, he woke the whole house up at like 2 in the morning. Hey, everyone, we're going for ice cream. And he gets everyone <laughs> bundled into the car and the family goes for ice cream together and they're able to go out and have ice cream at like two in the morning. Yeah, right. And it's creating it where, sure, the kids were late for school the next day, yeah. all that kind of stuff because the family slept in. But for him, it was the valuing of, no, no, I'm creating this experience for my family. I'm not. They're not going to miss out on weird and crazy things like this. And so uh, kind of from the perspective of... Not and him not being able to go out at a normal time throughout the day without getting people coming up and kind of interrupting family time. Yeah, his only time is really the middle of the night. Uh, yeah, and instead of begrudging that, going, let's just celebrate. Yeah, let's jump in it. Let's do it. Yeah. So he wasn't going to be a victim to that. He wasn't mm. going to go woe well, is me. He's like, I'm going to figure out a way to make this fun anyway. And and that was one of the things where okay, he's never ever a victim. So how long did you spend with that family? So I was with them for most of my time in America. I was in America for three years, three and a bit, I think it was. So formative uh, years in your life and an incredibly yeah. formative influence. 
Yeah, and it was really, 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 really good because your family has this incredible ability to build who you are when you're growing up. They're the main voice. Then, mm. you know, your friends are a little voice and that can be go either way. But then at the end of that experience, I moved to a completely different country and uh, most of your support systems are, are removed and figuring out who am I in this moment? Who do I want to be? Uh, how do I maintain, a, you know, the steady course and direction instead of making dumb decisions, which is what typically I, most of us do in those years, right? So having this, um, yeah, I guess, one of those incredible opportunities to spend time with someone of great influence really yes. fed into you and then what happens and after that people too. the other thing too is and this is what's really key is that not only do i get to spend time with him but i get people to spend time with people in his circles so you're getting to i'm getting to meet people who are the most influential leadership people in the last you know 50 years people who are quoted daily on like you know the instagram yeah inspirational i don't know i don't do instagram but i presume they're on that. <laughs> but people who quote it daily like i got to hang out with those people because i was in this guy's circle it was an incredible experience of getting to just hear these people talk and what they're talking about and, and those kinds of things yeah did you know what that was like did you re- recognize in that moment like this is a pretty special spot to be uh, off and on off and on sometimes i did and then there's often times where i look back i'm like oh my goodness is that for granted what was i thinking like there was a time where i got um i got training and mentoring from a guy who was analyzing the presidential debates on nbc and i got training and mentoring from this guy on public speaking right you know like and i just but i didn't actually mine it for everything it was worth i just was like oh cool this is fun right but he's the guest that's brought on at every election cycle yeah it's like like, the, the top end the pinnacle of of that that field yeah. And you just kind of wander in and go, hey, teach me some stuff. Yeah, it, it had to have been worth tens of thousands of dollars. And we're talking this is 20 years ago. Tens of thousands of dollars then, it had to have been. And I just was like, oh, yeah, this is normal, right? But looking back, you know, I'm like, what was a kid from Perth doing there? But here's what I, here's one of the things that I do. From those experiences, one of the things that, that I know happened was that I took in so much. I didn't put it in action. I had no way of putting it all in action in the right way and building good habits and ways of thinking because I was just drinking from a fire hose the whole time. And so I'm not actually stopping to put stuff in action. And what's interesting is now deliberately looking back and using those conversations, the things that I got to observe and the learning points and, and using that to leverage how I behave and think mm. now. Um, so that, that's been one of the most interesting things is going, oh, wow, I kind of wasted that at the time, but, uh, it wasn't a waste because now I'm still yes. drawing on that experience, but I didn't, for, I might not have for 10 or 15 years and then gone, actually, there's some stuff there that I could probably do some stuff with. <laughs> and so in that kind of 10 to 15 years post the U S like you, you came back to Perth, um, yeah. what, what was some of those, some of the other things that shaped you during that time? Uh, getting married. Yeah. <laughs> I married an incredible woman. Uh, and it's like every other thing that I did, like I did so many poor decisions uh, when I was 22, 23. And yet I made the most incredible decision of marrying my wife, Lisa. Like she's, and I, 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 I don't, I, if I was to do that 10 times over, I think nine and a half times I'd do that poorly. And yet, <laughs> Somehow 
in this multi in this version of the multiverse, <laughs> multiverse yeah i got it correct uh, and man i got it correct and so marrying her and learning from her and learning how to love her uh and learning how to be a good lover of someone hmm. and so uh, you and I were talking about the other day and I was talking about, oh, for so many years and when I first got married, like the first decade, I was caretaking and I wasn't giving her the truth because I was scared of of the implications and I was trying to protect someone and without realising that by trying to protect her, I was actually disempowering her. Uh, and and yet, she, you know, despite I was doing all these mistakes, she loved, she's loved me and continues to love me <laughs> and we've build this incredible relationship. And so that's what I mean by learning how to love someone really well and believe in them to give them hard things. For most of my life, I was terrified of giving people hard news. So I only ever told people what they wanted to hear. So you talk about manipulating people, right? That that was a big part of it. I told people what they wanted to hear. Um, nowadays, people who know me go, what now? Who's that guy? That's not <laughs> And so where does that come from? Like the desire to to only give people good news, what was the driving motivation for that? And then your ability to do it now, what's the driving motivation for that? Yeah, so, so the driving motivator, what, as a kid growing up, and this is what I've realised, my sister and I were talking about it, like, uh, we grew up in this incredibly loving home, but it was also um, my parents got married really young uh, and had kids really young. Mm. And in that experience, uh, there was a lot of uh, anger in the household and as a kid, like my dad's taller than me. I'm pretty tall. He's taller than me in this huge presence. And any time he got angry, it was like run for the hills time. Uh, and so it was learning to, in the in the space of that, in that in that kind of environment, to uh, I was learning how to navigate that. And how you would do that would be only ever tell him what he wanted to hear. Sure. So kind of learned behavior. Yeah, it was a, le- a learned behavior from yeah. my family of origin stuff is, is always incredibly, incredibly yeah. influential. And so um, I, that was where I learned it from. Uh, and then I learned it is, oh, this is super, oh, wow, I can control the situation if I do this. <laughs> uh, but then I soon learned that it's uh, it's incredibly, essentially if you're only tell, ever telling people what they want to hear, there's a lack of, I've mentioned before, a lack of authenticity, a lack of realness, uh, and that becomes an incredibly lonely place. Uh, and so... Wanting to change that was understanding that, oh, I've been given a whole much, a whole bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of stuff has been invested in me by these incredible people, incredible leaders. A whole bunch of wisdom has been planted in me. If I don't use this and wield this carefully, not mm. just like a, just a hammer, mm. but carefully, but give people, give it to people, even when it's hard for them to hear, that's absolutely wasted and a crime. Mm. And learning that that was how things were going to play out if I kept on that trajectory. And so beginning to then choose to have the harder conversations. And the person who I began to practice that with the most and then it expanded out from there was I started with with, with Lisa, being honest with her and giving her stuff uh, and just trusting that she's a big girl. And even if I'm wrong and even if I hurt her feelings, she's not going anywhere. She's staying with me um, and learning what that kind of environment looks like. Uh, and that's essentially what we all want. We all want to be in a space where people can push back against us and we know that they're on our team. Yeah. You know, whether it's a workplace, whether it's in families or friendships, we want to know that there can be friction, but they're also on my team. And so it, the journey of that, kind of mapping it out, sort of self-preservation at the start, this learned behavior, which then turned into, hey, I can use this to my advantage, mm-hmm. um, which inauthentic, lonely, isolated place, then come to a place of actually I want to create a space 
which is going to help people grow and develop. And yes. it's more about them than it is about you and your experience of it. Yes, because it, it started out. You've hit, yeah, you you put that perfectly. So it, it essentially starts out as self preservation, mm. and moving the and you can't serve people if you're if you're in self preservation mode. And so this whole lead different building leaders worth following. We can't do that if we're if we're protecting ourselves and preserving ourselves. You have to actually want to serve people, uh, and so that's been a big shift for 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 me realizing that was an integral part of it. Was there a catalyst for that shift? Like what what helped you? Because that's a big jump, right? Like if you've spent yeah. your entire life doing it this way and then going, well, I, I want to try something different, it, yeah, it's yeah. not just a switch to flip. Yeah. yeah. So I got arrested for something I didn't do and had to go to trial for it. Yeah. Uh, and it was a pretty big deal. If, if, if the jury didn't like me, yeah. which is essentially what it came down to, if the jury didn't like me, I was going to jail for 12 years. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, and in that experience, to find a really good lawyer, because you don't want to gamble on like this kind of stuff, uh, that experience is is a multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars experience, right? So I don't have that money. I'm, I'm borrowing that money from friends and family, which means that economically I'm in the hole in a bad place. Um, relationally, people heard that I was accused of something and arrested for something and they kind of ran for the hills. Mm. So I found myself alone. And then um, I just discovered through that experience, one of the most freeing things was I've got my family around me. i got a couple of friends, it wasn't <laughs> many, and i got my wife who just has been incredible. And learning that I don't need everyone to like me. Telling people what they want is so that they'll like me. Yeah. And learning that I'm okay. And not only that, but the, the, the people, so the family of origin stuff, which is how I developed that skill of, of telling people what they want, they stuck with me all through this anyway. So if they're going to stick with me through this, then yeah. I can probably don't have to tell people what they want to hear anymore. Um, and obviously I was uh, acquitted and, and, and not guilty in unanimously in a very quick time because the whole thing was so absurd. But um, in that experience, just learning uh looking because when everything was everything about me was kind of laid bare and just ripped open in this experience and and when that's put on display and you're able to go i'm not guilty of, of anything that you guys just accused me of i also don't like me though that's a tough realization like to even kind of look in the mirror and go yeah i'm not wild about that guy looking back at me yeah yeah and there was a bunch of people who did like me, though. Uh, but they liked me because I told them what they wanted to hear. Yeah. As, as my wife and I were beginning to, to look at what we do next after this whole uh, really traumatic, where I was, I was diagnosed with PTSD and everything from this whole experience, mm. uh, a real mess. And emerging from that, I got to meet some incredible people who uh, really, really, once again, some, some friends from America, um, really high-performing, high-level leaders, leadership coaches, uh, who really um, tore me apart, tore me apart in, in the most kind way. <laughs> uh, and, and in the process, helped me discover that I can be someone who adds tremendous value. And the more I am me, the more value I bring. And so, and when I'm me, what I'm doing in that process is bringing out the stuff that's been invested in me 
and bringing that, letting that out to surface whether people are going to respond positively or negative, negatively to it. Uh, but, but doing it with the desire to serve people is the important part in that. And in that experience, so, so I was like, well, I've got all these really famous, influential people. I'm going to bring them out here. I'm going to start really different, and I'll run these events, and these people speak at it. Um, but what I discovered was that there was a couple of people had come to these events and they said, hey, we're not coming to another one until you're the speaker. I was like, oh, okay. And so I, I, I spoke at a couple of events and I, I realized that it's a lot easier to make money when you're paying yourself. <laughs> and it's not about the making money though, but you remember how I was in a real financial hole? I'd, um, I needed out of it. And the way I get out of a financial hole is money. Yes. <laughs> that, that, that's what problems. I've heard, right? Like that's, that's yeah, the yeah. rumors. Yeah, when you owe money and you need to pay people, pay people back, you, you need to access some money. Uh, and so I began to do that. And then I realized that one of the things I realized is, okay, if I really want to make an impact, um, I, I need to slow things down. Because I, I thought about my experience when I was in America, how I was just constantly getting stuff and I wasn't able to put stuff into action. And out of that, I developed the idea for the Ignite program where it's about slowing things down, put stuff in action, experiment with it. So, so we say exposure to new information, experiment with it, uh, and then examine the results. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I learned from my friend in America is alliteration. And, th- and like the power of three, right? Like that's the... And the power of three, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exposure, so ex- exposure uh, experiment, and examination. Yeah. Right? And, and that's what we started to do with Ignite program. That was where we started to see really big results. Um, which some of those results are incredible uh, from that. And I realized it, you don't make as much money because you can't just go and deliver and, and just do it all the time because you're doing it slowly. But it's it's so much more fun when you have people for the long term. And, you know, people call you up two or three years later and say, hey, just let you know, this is where I'm at now. This is what's happened because of the Ignite program I did two years ago um, or three years ago. Crazy, and, yeah. and that gets me so excited. <laughs> So I want to pinpoint a couple of things. So in in the, those discussions with kind of your friends at the US, post trial kind of heaps of debt, you're in mm-hmm. this space which is probably not you know probably not great PTSD all of that, yeah. and they feed into you and they they tell you the truth like they're honest with you. Yeah, um, you have a choice in that moment, right? Yeah. To go, I'm going to listen to you and actually accept this truth, or screw you you don't know me um, and you've, you've made the hard choice, right? Like what, how were you in the space to even do that? Yeah. Um, because my wife and I got pregnant 10 years after we were told we're never having children. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I, that was when it became a, like abundantly clear to me who I am right now is going to ruin this kid. And that was, that was one of the things I was like, mm, okay, time to change some things. And so, um, and the other day, oh, so I was watching a, a movie on Netflix called Bruise, I think it's called, or Bruised. I think it's uh, Bruised it's, with a D. Bruised, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's Halle Berry's, Halle Berry, I think her name is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so she's, it's her directorial debut. She's doing this thing, and it's, this, it's martial arts thing, and in it there's a, a martial arts fighter, and a coach is evaluating this martial arts fighter. Uh, and the coach is a woman and the, the fighter's a woman. And, and the coach says... Uh, this is the, the um, paraphrasing of it. Um, she's too much of a victim. You can't win a fight if you're a victim. And for most of us, we create circumstances where we're a victim because it, it works for us to be a victim because we get let off the hook for all these other reasons and stuff like that. But we can't win any fights while we're a victim. And I don't know about you, but life is just a series of fights. 
like you're fighting to for a relationship you're fighting for uh, a job you're fighting for a contract you're fighting for but there's a series of really and they're all good fights right not all of them but there's a series of good fights you can choose to fight what i do know is you can't win any of them if you're being a victim yeah and it's and and, and watching that the the and the, the it's powerful in the movie because you're watching this fighter be a victim until they get so angry at the person they're fighting then they just destroy them <laughs> right? Yeah. And so they're victim, 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 oh, and then all of a sudden they get so pissed off that they just destroy and they win their fight. And it's interesting, like, well, why can't you go in that mentality without having Straight any anger? And so for me, looking back, um, I think I subconsciously knew that there was a bunch of fights. There's some fights I had to, to do, uh, and being a victim wasn't cutting it. I wasn't winning anything. I wasn't winning a round, let alone a fight. Yeah. Uh, and so... It had been. I was in that real victim space for for a while, but the space between when I was arrested to when I finally started the journey out was probably two and a half years. The only fight that I won in that, and in fact, if I remember rightly, um, an insight. So in, in my trial, the first, so I, I was put on the stand because if you're innocent, you, you can get put on the stand, and it, it should work out for you. If you're guilty, never go on the stand. And I I remember the first before lunch, I was just getting destroyed because I had a victim mindset then. And my lawyers were like, they, they actually looked worried. I was like, oh, oh something's not going well. <laughs> uh, this is one of the things where I can read people quite well. <laughs> um, and so I, I was like, this isn't going well. I remember then for lunch break, they take you down to the little prison and, and you get, you know, put in a little cell. And so I put in my little cell for, for the lunch thing. And I remember sitting in there and just knowing that it wasn't going well and just going, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Uh, and, you know, offering up all the prayers to, to anyone who might listen. Because <laughs> I was like, I, this, this, what do I do? Was, was basically. And then I went back up and uh, for the rest of the afternoon, I fought like hell and wasn't a victim and wouldn't be walked all over in that thing. And my, I remember my lawyers came up to me with a note and handed me a note. Uh, I should have kept the note, but I didn't, uh, mainly because I was too, too much of a mess. But in the note, they said, what the hell happened at lunch? That was epic. And I, I, I don't know what happened at lunch um, other than I came back ready to fight. Yeah. And that's what happened is that I, I went to America and I met up with some people and they woke up in me the desire to fight for something yep. uh, and the fight out of that place of victimhood, the fight out of a place of uh, being torn down because I was torn down, but I didn't know how to rebuild. Uh, and so to fight for the rebuild and fight for the things who I want to be in the rebuild. Um, and it's been a journey of that ever since. Um, I, I still feel like I'm re rebuilding. I'm curious kind of after you've hit that point of like, yeah, the fight has been awakened within me. Yeah. What was your first decision that you took which kind of, put you on this trajectory of like deliberate future versus default future? What, what was the first thing you did? Yeah, so um, one of the first things was sitting down with Lisa and talking about what kind of marriage we're going to have. Hey, this is who we're going to be. And she was like, all right, I'm in. <laughs> one of the second things was going, I am not working for anyone else. I'm going to start a company. Um, I've got a kid and I want my kid to grow up in the best city on the planet. The way that happens is that my kid grows and Elizabeth Key was being finished at the time, the new footy stadium. I was like, that's not gonna, not gonna be what makes Perth great. What makes gonna be make what the thing that's gonna make Perth great is the people. Hmm. I'm gonna start a company that's gonna build into people that's gonna make this the best city on the planet. So that's what I began to do. One of the things was like, I'm no longer just gonna take a job from anyone. I'm gonna create 
the job that I want to work at. And I became unemployable. <laughs> so that that was one of the big things. It, it was just I'm going to do that. And so I started reading voraciously about um, how to change my brain and how yep. to the way that I think. Came across some incredible authors um, from you know the last couple of thousand years. Um, that's a beautiful thing about books, right? Like someone yeah. a couple of thousand years ago was really really sharp and either they wrote it down or someone else wrote stuff down that they said, and we get to access it today, a couple of thousand years later in a completely different planet. Like the planet that we're on now is a completely Mm. different planet to one that they lived on. Yeah, but there's still some timeless principles which are like key across all humanity. Yeah. And so just reading about Marcus Aurelius, reading about um, Epictetus, Mm. reading about, uh, you know, a a lot of the Stoics um, and different interpretations, reading about... Uh, Malcolm X, reading about all these different interesting people who had a fight that they wanted to fight, um, reading about um, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the guy was extraordinary at rebuilding. He had to, mm. he was tasked with rebuilding America after the Civil War. Right? How does he try to unite that country? Um, so that was one of the things that I, I was, you know, I would, I would read anything along those lines um, and try to in, and and do it with the purpose of integrating. Um, I wanted to be, I wanted to be really different at the end of each week than I was at the beginning of each week, and so my growth that I went through in that period of time was incredibly steep yep. learning curve, um, and I'm not on that because it wasn't. I actually don't think it's sustainable. Long no, long. I was going to ask about energy levels for that, like because that's exhausting, right? Yeah, it was incredibly exhausting. Yeah, it was very very tiring, um, and you know, my wife laughs all the time at me. She's like, "You are not the man I married." <laughs> In a good way, yeah, like in a positive Whoa, way. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually had the courage to get it to clarify. <laughs> You're just, uh, yeah, you, you've got your own perspective on that. That's fine. Yeah, I'm going to choose a perspective, <laughs> but it's in a good way. And so I guess within um, Ignite, and we'll talk about Ignite in a second, but like part of, part of it is uh, there's an element of risk where people will, kind of figure out the the best way to take risks. And I'm curious about the risks that you took that were kind of substantial but paid off. Yeah. So I I remember one of the, the first people to come out from America, I was going to put on a leadership training event with them. Uh, and one of the risks was when we were planning it, they said, oh, so, you know, so is this going to work financially? I was like, yeah, I'll be able to get like, you know, 150 people in a room. They'll all pay like, you know, 150 bucks each. <laughs> And uh, oh, it'll be easy. Yeah, I'll, I'll get it covered. And he was like, "Oh, okay, cool, all right." And this guy had just seen me back in America when he was having crucial conversations with me around the idea of me learning to fight again um, and stopping a victim. And so I understand now why they might have been a little bit dubious. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. But I took this, and, and he took a risk too. Like I remember, <laughs> I remember he told me he was getting, he got in the Uber. On the way to the, I think it was or a taxi or something on the way to the airport from LA, thinking this could be the dumbest thing I've ever done, <laughs> and that was his perspective. And mine was like, "Well, I hope everyone shows up." Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I did. I put on a series of events, um, and I remember he was here for a week, and over that week, he we did a series of events. He left Australia with over twenty grand. And I, I, over that week, I'd learned less than two because I had just taken the risk of, like, I just need to get something going here. 
right? Are we, when we talk about momentum, I talk about momentum a lot. I was like, I just got to get something moving. Um, and I remember my wife going, you put a lot of work into that for two grand. I'm not sure you got the, you got the right end of that deal. Um, and that was a huge risk because then he contacted his friends. He's like, hey, I got this guy in Australia and he's doing some really cool stuff. And so some of his friends who were also in the same kind of space were like, all right, I'll come too. And I was bringing those people out here without them being famous, just going, I'll be able to fill a room. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and constantly doing that. I'll be able to book them into different corporations who are going to book them and, and whatnot and taking big risks with that. So were there any other risks that you took it didn't work out and you're kind of like, no, that was not helpful for me? Um, only one. <laughs> oh, well, okay. What's, what's one that comes to mind? All right. So one that comes to mind, there's, there's one and it's huge because it stands out because it was a, a huge momentous occasion in our life, my wife and I. Um, but it, it started out that I had this idea, you know what, I'm going to put on like a mega event. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean by mega event? Like it's going to be big, it's going to be huge and it's going to cost a lot of money, but I can make a lot of money and make a really big impact. So uh, I thought I'm going to simply, I'll do this. So I invited seven of my friends from around the world, uh, all of them incredibly impactful, powerful speakers doing really interesting things like the chief of design for NASA, uh, and then, you know, the chief of staff for Jay-Z at Rock Nation, like people doing interesting things. I'm going to get them out here. I'm going to do an event. So I get them out here. Uh, I fly them out here. And I, I have no, I've got one corporate, two corporate sponsors. Uh, and one of them was a corporate sponsor who loaned me money for the flights. The second corporate sponsor was uh, someone, and yeah, because I had no money. Uh, uh, big risk here. And corporate sponsorship with like loaning you money—that's isn't really corporate sponsorship. No, yeah, really yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were getting the they were getting a good end of the deal. They loan yes. money and they get to advertise to all these people. The second corporate sponsor um, was was sponsoring, I think, two and a half grand, um, which was it. And the event was going to cost me, uh, I believe, it was about fifty five to put on. Goodness, to put on. I maybe it was even more. It's it's all one big kind of money nightmare <laughs> money blur yeah this is but there's a couple of good things that come out of it and we'll get to that at, at the end but uh i so i put them on i, I book them all out here uh, they're all keen they're all excited half of them know each other we've, we've met we've been in other sort of circles for a few few years and at the uh <laughs> i remember the week beforehand and I, I need about 350 people to break even uh, and that's my break even people and all these people have said, yeah, I'm going to bring this many people. I'm going to bring this many people. I've spoken to all these organizations. And the number that I'm at where supposedly all these people are coming is over 700. So I'm like, I should be good. That's it. You double what you need to be. Yeah. yeah. A week out and I've sold 150 tickets. Mm. And one of the things I realized, there was a whole bunch of people who when they said, I'm going to bring 100 people, what they meant was, I'm going to come this year. And if it's good, I'll invite people next year. But this year, I'm just, I don't want to put my reputation on the line in case your event sucks. Yeah. So I remember a, uh, yeah, we we're about three or four days out. Uh, the next day, I'm going to start picking up all the guests as they arrive um, from different places around the world. My wife comes in uh, early morning. She sits on the bed and she says, um, I know you got a lot on and it's probably not a good time to tell you, but I'm so excited to have to tell you, but, 
uh, we're pregnant again, <laughs> which for us is like, so, uh, so we're, she's a relief teacher and I'm self-employed. So there's virtually no parental leave or money available to us. So it means that one of us is going to be cutting back on income. And my wife's income at that stage was much more reliable than mine. So it was a big, oh, crap moment. The event ran. I ended up having maybe 210 people there. I lost over $40,000 of my own money. The corporate sponsor, oh, that's right. The corporate sponsor, I, I'm an idiot. This is, this is on me. I didn't get the check from them until I was so busy doing everything. I didn't get the money from them before the event. The corporate event, the corporate sponsor comes along. I meet with them afterwards. They're like, that event was incredible. It's one of the best we've ever seen. And that was the, the widespread feedback was that was one of the best events we've ever seen. That was amazing. I'm going to bring all my friends next year. Uh, the corporate sponsor, that was one of the best events we've been involved. It was amazing. But you didn't have the people there who you said were coming. We don't want to pay. Wow. Yeah. Now, it's not in the contract that I have yeah. a certain amount of people there. Yeah. Were paid. So it, it was a, yeah, that organization is, and the people involved who, who gave me that feedback are blacklisted. Like I will never trust them again. Like, well, that's fair. Yeah. Like I said, that was, all, that was all out of my wife and I's pockets that were empty anyway. Uh, we had to pay people back for that. And it took me a year to pay the corporate sponsor back for the flights at least maybe even longer because uh, as my wife got she went through a pregnancy there was she couldn't actually work like the pregnancy was pretty rough so you guys are in this massive hole right like oh, how did huge, you huge. how did you dig yourself you can't dig yourself out of a hole how did you climb out of that hole how did you find your way out so because i was in such a big huge hole there was a guy who was at the event who's a bit of a he's an accountant and he's a really sharp guy uh and he came to the event he's like that event was actually extraordinary. There's something to you and what you what you're up to here, but you're a financial idiot, and he was wrong. <laughs> That's a truth. I love it. <laughs> and uh, and that guy ended up buying into the to the company, uh, lead different, and he's a business partner to, the, to this day. Well, that's it. Like that's the the risk that was that you took that you know, really quite costly. But there's as with anything, I think there's always something good that comes out of it if you yeah. if you're ready for it. Yeah, and if you st if you look for it, right? So uh, I remember he actually came to me and he goes, uh, when he saw how he, he came to meet with me to tell me how great the event was uh, and we caught up and obviously I was, I must have been looking like I'd, you know, just been shot or something because he said, I've never seen someone look so devastated and broken and alone as what when I met with you. And I, that was how I felt because I was, I was yeah. sitting with this debt that only I was carrying having tried to do something extraordinary for a whole bunch of people in the city. And I felt just so alone after that. Uh, and he was like, I've got you, man. And so, yeah, so it turned into this real success story, but that was a mistake, a risk that did not work out. So if there was one thing that you had to tell the world, what would that be? This changes weekly. This yeah. week, what I would say is, um, Focus on being good, not looking good. Unpack that a bit. So, so a lot of the time, when I work with leaders, when I work with organizations, individuals, one of the things that I notice is that a lot of people spend a lot of their time uh, covering their own ass, right? 
So they're worried about what they look like. They're worried about making, they're managing their reputation is probably a good way to describe it. And so we, they're trying to control some kind of narrative about who they are and what kind of person they are uh, and what they're up to. So they're, they'll only choose stuff that they think will make them look good. They'll only um, take, on, take on tasks or invest time and energy into things that they think, oh, this is going to get me noticed. And that works for a while. But for each person that you have inside your circle where you're trying to control the narrative and you're trying to look good in front of, it, the difficulty and the anxiety uh, go, grows exponentially. So I call that like focus, manage, you're trying to manage your reputation instead of growing, growing your integrity. And so when I say you're trying to be good, actually do the work to become the person who can be trusted with whatever skills or success that you want to chase down. And so that's kind of my message right now. So, so focus on the things that are actually going to produce the results where you, this is who I'm becoming. This is, I'm going to do the work that no one notices. I'm going to do the stuff. I'm going to deal with the stuff within me that I could probably ignore for now, but deal with that stuff. Have those conversations that you typically run away from, especially with yourself. Uh, there's so many, like I had a conversation with my Vesper uh, uh, on the way here. Uh, and it was on some, a, a level of success that I've been a little bit scared of. Um, and a lot of it was based around, I don't want to be noticed. I don't want people to notice me because then like, you know, all my flaws will come to the, the surface. People will know stuff about me and people will start talking about me if I become any kind of success in this area, as opposed to everyone already knows that. <laughs> How about you just trust on, on putting the work in to become the person who can be trusted with that success? That's good. Thank you. What are you reading and consuming at the moment? Yeah. So uh, I ran an event a couple of weeks ago, and in it I was th- trying out some new ideas that I've been developing over the last 18 months, uh, and I put them out there, and, I was, and they worked, and people seemed to really enjoy it and, and were excited by it. And it was pretty funny because then uh, my wife said, hey, have you listened to this podcast? It's uh, Tim Ferriss interviews. I think the guy's name is Dan Schur, uh, and he's a producer, and he was on uh, The Office so he was Cousin Moe's on The Office, you know, Dwight Schrute's cousin. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he was a producer and a writer on The Office. He was on uh, producer and writer for um, uh, Saturday Night Live. He was a producer and a writer for uh, the, the Parks and Rec um, and a bunch of other shows. But his, his pet project was this show called The Good Place, right? which is this really weird uh, <laughs> exploration into philosophy and in there he in in so in this interview that tim Ferriss does with him he talks about why he's obsessed with philosophy and he begins to talk about aristotle and aristotle was quite a foundational philosopher and you've heard of him he's he's written a few yeah i have come across him yeah. yeah yeah okay cool um but aristotle had these things called the virtues and the way he talked about the virtues i didn't know this and this is annoying because i thought i had this really cool interesting new thing and basically what I'm doing is I'm building upon the work of Aristotle. And so... Which in reality is not necessarily a bad thing. It's nothing to be sneezed at. To be no. able to build on Aristotle, that's got to be okay. Yeah. If I'm building on his work, I might be on the right track. So so uh, what am I consuming right now is I've gone back to The Good Place and I'm, I'm consuming that show. It's on Netflix. I uh, highly encourage people to look at that because it's on moral ethics. Uh, and I'm now at the point of view where I think that the study of moral ethics should be required to graduate from high school. Um, and, uh, but, but on top of that, I'm also diving into Aristotle's virtues. And so I'm doing a deep dive 
uh, on the internet for that. Because uh, the way he talks about it is that if you have too little courage, that's a bad thing because you end up doing nothing, right? You're too scared of everything. If you have too much courage, that's also a bad thing because like in, say, in a battle situation, you know, hey, you're just, you're just going to charge out into the battlefield without thinking about what the most strategic way to do this is um, and you'll die. <laughs> and so he, the way he frames all, all his virtues is that too much is a good thing, is not a good thing and too little is a good thing and finding that balance point. The other thing I like about Aristotle's virtues that I discovered is that uh, so there's some some philosophers who talk about a lot of virtues and philosophy and they're like, if you don't do this, you're dead to me. Um, and a lot of philosophers are really hardliners like that. Yes. Aristotle was like, eh, you're going to screw this up, but so long as you're giving an effort, let's keep moving in the same direction, which is what I love because a lot of what I talk about with that momentum is about, no, no, just make sure you're moving in the right direction. You know, MLK said, you know, if you can't walk, if you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. If you can't crawl, find someone to carry you. Um, it's that kind of thing. Like, just be going in the right direction. You don't have to get it perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So, how can people connect with you with Lead Different? What's the best way? Yeah, not on social media. <laughs> what? Crazy. Uh, so, email me. James at Lead Different uh, is is one of the things. Uh, you say on, they can get added to our email list where we talk about. Uh, I talk about a lot of weird things. Um, anything from something that my kids have said through to, an, you know, a deep dive exploration of Aristotle's 12 virtues. You never know what's happening each week on that. Uh, very little marketing. It's not one of the, you know, some people's like, sign up for email list and then you end up marketed to the whole time. I market yeah, yeah. something like twice a year, maybe. Uh, that's it. This is just creating. And I'm actually creating, oh, I actually am creating a thing for people. Yeah. It's a, I'm, I want to create a Discord community to discuss fun things like what we do at Lead Different. So to discuss virtues, to discuss. So people who want to deep dive in this place, on this stuff as well can have a place where they can come and discuss with other people who've done Lead Different programs uh, or done the Ignite program, whatever it is. Um, that So um, that'll be launched in the next week or two, yeah, uh, which will be after this podcast released. <laughs> and the website as well. Which and the website, lead yeah, leaddifferent.org um, and ignitegroups.org. I will put all those links in the show notes. And the other thing is, if you haven't done an Ignite group, um, my life's work is that Ignite program, the Ignite group, right? It's the, my journey out of being a, a person who couldn't get out of bed to, you know, being paid a lot of money to teach people how to lead themselves. And it's my journey that I went on to, to be able to do that. And what we say is at Lead Different, when we build leaders worth following, is that it's all built on being being able to lead yourself well. Uh, and so uh, that's our Ignite program. I highly encourage people, if you haven't done that, figure out a way to get that done. Uh, sign up at ignitegroups.org um, or get your boss to pay for it at work <laughs> and get your team at work to do it. Uh, that's where it succeeds the most is doing it in teams. Yeah. James, thank you for joining me on your podcast. Thank me for joining you. Yes, thank me. I'm uh, Karen, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> See you, mate. Thanks for listening to the Lead Different podcast. At Lead Different, we are building leaders worth following. And if you'd like to find out more information about this and leading yourself well, head to leaddifferent.org.